You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We are uh, continuing our study in in this uh, letter and um, going to look at verses 18 through 25 today. Paul's theme throughout this chapter has been the assurance of salvation, and uh, the climax of that assurance, he says, is the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Uh, He says, uh, verse 15, you'll see, he says, you have received the spirit of the adoption, of adoption as sons. And uh, verse 16, he says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What a wonderful truth. I heard about a little girl who went to the doctor and he was trying to put her mind at ease. He was making these little jokes uh, with her as he had his stethoscope and listening and he said, I I wonder if I I hear a a big bird in there. And he looked in her ears and he says, I wonder if I I see Mickey Mouse in there. And he listened to her heart and he says, "Uh, I think I hear Barney in there. And, And finally she pushed back and she said, mister, she said, Barney is on my underwear and Jesus is in my heart heart. What a great truth, isn't it? That the Spirit of Jesus has taken up residence in the lives of those who have trusted Him as their Savior and as a guarantee that we're His forevermore. There is no condemnation, he says in chapter 8, verse 1, for those who are in Christ. And at the end of the chapter, nothing can separate us from His love. Now, one of the reasons Paul wants to drive this home in our hearts is because if there's anything that could make us doubt this uh, truth, it is the suffering that we sometimes experience. And uh, so it's this theme of suffering and glory that Paul turns to now, Romans 8, verse 18. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole earth, the whole creation, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hope for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray together. Lord, we we ask your help now, humbling ourselves with the knowledge that what you have to say to us is more important than anything we could say to you. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear today. 
I pray that you would use me as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. This is really quite a a profound and, and powerful passage of of scripture and and it's written by someone who was familiar with suffering the apostle paul by his own testimony in second corinthians chapter 11 uh, when his ship was not sinking or when he was not being stoned uh, or robbed he was beaten within an inch of his life He wasn't speaking poetically when he told the Galatians that I bear in my body the marks of Jesus because he had marks on them. And yet it's recorded that some believers even down through history had it even, the suffering even worse than Paul. Some believers in Christ we read about have known years in in terrible, uh, vermin-filled prisons Uh, Others have been uh, fed to lions and sawn in half and and, uh, quartered and beheaded and uh, many others abandoned by their family, ostracized in their communities. And though though we, we pray, we never have to experience that kind of tribulation, the kind that Paul mentions in verse 35, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. The reality is, and that Paul is communicating to us, is that suffering is a part of the Christian life. It's as common to God's people today as it was in the the people of the New Testament. Maybe we haven't experienced the kind of persecution our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world are experiencing even now, but we might. And we all have experienced the fallout of living in a fallen, sinful world. There's suffering. We suffer when uh, our loved ones die. We, we grieve and disappointment when our, when our children disappoint us. We're hurt by friends. Uh, we, we understand the pain that comes from suffering trauma, trauma or, or sickness of some kind or, or when loved ones do, and the list goes on and on. And, and the truth is, is that your assurance of salvation better be stronger than some slogan written on a t-shirt. It better be the assurance of the Spirit in your heart. It better be a robust theology that can withstand any kind of doubts and thoughts that could be brought about by suffering that Satan may use against you. This is exactly the kind of theology Paul is giving us here in this passage. Notice some of the truths about suffering and glory as he pairs them together. First of all, notice that they belong together. That's verse 18. He says, for I... I consider, he's pointing us back to what he's just said at the end of verse 17. He says, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, the theme that for the three chapters at least 
um, has been that, that the Christian is someone who is in union with Jesus Christ. And what that means is that, that we are connected with, we're in union with his life, we're in union with his resurrection, we're in union with his glory, but we're also in union with his death and his suffering. To identify with Jesus is to identify with his suffering, church. Peter told us this, 1 Peter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He goes on to say in that passage, Peter does, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore Confirm, strengthen, and establish you, he says. John Stott has been helpful to me in this particular passage, but he writes this, I think, in a poetic kind of way. He says, sufferings and glory are married. They cannot be divorced. They're welded together. They cannot be broken apart. That's exactly right. Suffering and glory, inseparable. That's what we see in Christ, suffering and glory, and it's what we should expect as his followers, suffering and glory. John Calvin writes in his commentary on 1 Peter, the church of Christ has been from the beginning so constituted that the cross has been the way to victory and death a passage to life. The order is to be noticed, he writes. He mentions sufferings first and then adds the glories which follows, for he intimates that this order cannot be changed or subverted. Afflictions must precede glory. So there's to be understood this twofold truth in these words. Christians must suffer troubles, many troubles, before they enjoy glory, and that afflictions are not evil because they have glory annexed to them. That's so important. And it's so important for your understanding, our understanding of Christianity. That's been an element that's been missed many, many years, and I think in the preaching of of, of God's churches, because how often that the gospel has been presented, uh, that when you come to Christ, all of your troubles are going to go away. You just need to come to Jesus and they'll all be disappeared. Many televangelists, just, you're going to have your best life now when you come to faith in Jesus. And beloved, it's not true at all. To be in union with Jesus, to be connected with him in salvation, to have him living in your life, is to be in union with his sufferings. And that is the only path to glory. That's not the whole of our theology. Paul goes on to tell us something else. Verse 18, again, that suffering and glory characterize two ages. Two ages. He says, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time 
are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's talking about two different times, two different ages, isn't he? That, that helps us to keep perspective because one of the things we can remember, we should remind ourselves here, that we are not currently living in glory, right? We are living on the earth. We are living, as he said, in this present time. And there's suffering, there's death, there's disease, there's disaster, there's, there's despicable behavior, evil behaviors. And this is the normal patterns of a world that is under the dominion of sin, cursed by Adam's fall in the garden. This is the foundational reason for which bad things happen and continue to happen in our world. Many of you remember Johnny Cash, who was known for his signature black, all black attire. And he sang these lines in one of his most famous songs. He says, uh, I'd love to wear a rainbow every day and tell the world that everything is okay. But I'll try to carry off a little darkness on my back till things are brighter. And he said, I'm the man in, in black, he said. That's our world. That's our present time. But, beloved, you know this. It will not always be that way, right? That's why he says the sufferings of this present time. That tells us there's another time that's coming. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with, apparently, another time when this glory will be revealed to us. And that glory sometimes seems a long way off, especially when you're going through the present time. But Paul wants us to, in effect, lift our gaze above the dark clouds of suffering as believers and to see this glory that is coming, to see it as it will be, at least for God's children. Remember verse 17, he tells us that we're heirs of God himself, that the Holy Spirit in us is a deposit, a guarantee, a, a foretaste of that glory. So there's not simply here this chronology about two times or two ages, but there's also this causal connection because he's saying to us that we can only see glory through the suffering, through suffering. That we must be brought to this place, brought to the end of ourselves before that we can see it, before we can savor it. We must be uh, brought to bankruptcy spiritually to recognize our deadness because only then can we see Christ in his glory and what he's done for us. It's never a guarantee. Suffering doesn't always uh, lead us to Christ we think about uh, the two men hanging on the cross, the thieves beside Jesus, suffering had hardened one of those men so much that he revolted against Christ, but it humbled the other man, didn't it? For one, it caused him to shake his fist toward Jesus. For the other, it caused him to bow his head and ask for mercy from God. Which one is it for you? There's no doubt, some of, some, some, of you, some of you here, someone here, maybe someone listening or watching today is suffering. And uh, some, maybe you come to church because you're hurting so bad today, you don't really know where else to go, where else to turn. Maybe you're, you're watching this. Can I encourage you today, look to Jesus Christ. 
You, you need no other evidence that he loves you than the fact that he died on the cross for you. Yes, the world is a messed up place. Yes, there is sin, death, and suffering. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins and to redeem you from sin and death and to give you life everlasting. And if you will cry out to God for this ability to see, to look past the clouds of suffering and, and to, to a Savior there who longs to embrace you in his arms, you, you will let your suffering lead you to the glory who is Jesus Christ. And for those of you who are Christians, you, you know this. There, there's this sense in which the Christian life is, there, there's a part of it that is glorious and that is joyful. Amen, church? There's wonderful parts of knowing the Lord and having these things, but at the same time, it's incredibly hard. Why? Because we've been brought into the family of Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit would be working into our lives a family likeness so that we will walk as he did and therefore suffering will mark our lives. Don't be surprised by this. Don't be astonished it, because it marked the life of Jesus Christ. All who are in Christ will suffer in one degree or the other. Now, that can sound very discouraging. Wow, this is terrible. But there's something else he tells us. Thirdly, he tells us that suffering and glory cannot be compared Verse 18, look at it again. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So here is Paul who had already suffered so much himself that as he's taking stock of his own life and considering all that he had been through, he had reached this firm conviction based on the gospel that all of the present sufferings that he had as painful as they were, could not compare to the future glory that is in Christ. In an earlier passage, Paul evaluated suffering and glory in a similar terms. 2 Corinthians 4.17, many of you know this, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison says. Notice that. Paul says the greatness of this eternal glory to come, that it so outweighs the present troubles of whatever you're, you, you may be going through, this, that they will be considered light and momentary when we come into his glory. Isn't that a good thought, church? The greatness of this glory will far surpass any of the unpleasantness and loss of our present sufferings. Now, Paul's using similar language here in Romans 8. He's not saying that your sufferings are light. He is saying that if you could see them in the light of the glory that is yet to be revealed, you would know that they are beyond comparison. That's what he's saying. These sufferings that we go through, far from being obstacles to the Father's purposes for us, are actually the Father's tool to transform us and to prepare us 
for the glory to come. This is really important again to our faith because it helps us to understand how we're to look at, approach life, the, the worldview that we're to have. Ferguson explains it like this. New Testament Christianity looks at the present life in light of the future life and not the other way around. We tend to look at the future in, in the light of the present life. But the, the way of the gospel, it encourages us to view either, uh, either the future or, or the present in light of, the, uh, of that. It's because he's saying that when, when you catch sight of the glory of Christ and this glory that is to come, you can never live the same way in the world as you once did. He's helping us to understand that, to frame, to have this perspective, whatever the suffering, whatever the struggles, whatever the trials, if we could just see beyond them to the glory, we would understand that they do not compare to that glory that is to be revealed and that God is using them, in fact, to forge in us this glory to come, which is beyond comparison. This is the fourth thing. Suffering and glory concern both God's creation and God's children. God's creation and God's children. This is his two illustrations that he gives of this, of this for us. The first one concerns his creation, verses 19 through 22. Listen to what he writes. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So, What is he talking about here? When Paul talks about creation here, he's talking about the physical world. He's talking about matter. He's talking about plants and animals. Um, he, he, but he personifies it, not, not because nature has some kind of personal feelings like we do, but he wants us to help us to see and picture this, the extent of this coming glory. And so what he tells us here is that creation itself has been caught up in all of this suffering going on in the world. It was, in his words, subjected to futility, not because of its own choosing. What is he, what is he talking about there? He's, but because of him, God, he says, who's subjected. He's talking about Genesis chapter 3 again and the fall when Adam sinned and a curse came upon not just Adam and Eve, but on all of creation. Creation became a sufferer with futility and decay and death. And we see that in our world. We see, we see it in the fury of nature. We see it in the destructive instincts of, of animals. Hughes puts it well. He says, the loveliest scenes in nature while remaining beautiful are also witness to bloody horrors, floods, hurricanes, droughts, tornadoes, blights, avalanches, and Earthquakes. This is important theology. Our world is fixated today on climate change and what might be the causes of those things. But a biblical worldview looks to Genesis 3, to the fall. This is what's happening in our world. 
This is what's wrong. Paul pictures it here in our text. Creation, groaning like like a woman in the pains of childbirth, he says, verse 22. We know the whole creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth, longing for that pain to be over with. Verse 21, longing to be set free from its bondage to corruption. And here is the good news. Thomas writes this, the good news is that the planet will be saved, but in a far more significant way than the green politics of the world. Our creation is going to be born again, he says. This is what the scripture teaches. Those pains that accompany childbirth are going to lead to what Jesus called in the gospels, a renewal of things. Not because that you you bought a battery-powered car, but because that God, what God is going to do in glory, he's telling us. Someday our groaning creation will come into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We read about this. We get glimpses of it in Revelation. Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. What was happening? God was making all things new, just like he promised. If we live in such a beautiful place now, and there are some beautiful places, in actuality, the Bible says we live in a fallen world. Can you imagine what a renewed creation is going to look like? It's no wonder Paul pictures creation as this audience that is eagerly longing for this day. Verse 19, creation, literally there, the wording is like creation is standing on its tiptoes, waiting for this to happen, stretching out its neck, like some of you parents and grandparents will be at the Christmas program of your kid's school, standing on your tiptoes, looking to see. This is the picture of creation, longing for this redemption to come to it. What a picture for us. When the world sees us as Christians right now, it doesn't have much regard for us. In fact, the world despises the Christian faith, and it's going to more and more. And it will worship the creation rather than the creator, Paul said in Romans 1. But while the world looks on with disdain toward Christians, all of creation, he says, is on its tiptoes. What are they watching for? They're watching and waiting and longing and looking forward to what God is going to do. Yes, this present time is suffering, but there's this glory that is coming, he says. 1 John 3, 1 says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. All of creation, Paul says, is on its tiptoes, watching for this to happen. And that's the second part of his point. Not just creation will be remade, but we will be remade. 
That work has already begun in our salvation. That's what Paul's been telling us. We've been redeemed. We're sons and daughters of God. We've received the spirit of adoption. We have the guarantee of his spirit living in our lives. We are heirs of of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. But we will not be complete until we get our new bodies. Notice how he explains it, the last part of the passage. Verse 23, he says, And not only the creation... But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, what are we doing? We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. Paul says that our lives as Christians is marked by groaning. Groanings, he says. We groan in our sufferings. We groan in misery of living in a fallen world. Ray Steadman writes this, we groan because of the ravages that sin makes in our lives. We groan because we see possibilities that are not being captured and employed. We groan because we see gifted people who are wasting their lives and would love to see something else happening. He reminds us it's recorded that as Jesus drew near to the tomb of Lazarus, you remember that story, that Jesus groaned in his spirit because he was so burdened by the ravages that sin had made in that believing family. He groaned even though he knew he would soon raise Lazarus from the dead. And so too, we groan in our spirits. We groan in bereavement. We groan in our suffering. We groan in disappointment. We groan physically in our pain. We, we groan all the time. And notice again, this groaning does not stop when Jesus comes into your life. In fact, it intensifies. It does so because we know that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. So our lives as Christians, though marked with groans, he says, verse 23, are also marked with this eager waiting. There's a sense not just that creation is on its tiptoes with its neck outstretched, waiting, looking above the clouds of suffering to see this glory, awaiting it to come. He says here that we too are, we too are on our tiptoes, stretching our necks out toward this future, or at least we should be, he says. That the Holy Spirit in us, a first fruit, a, a taste of this glory to come, His presence in us, that it causes us to long for this even more. Is there something in you that's longing for this, church? Anyone longing for this? I'll amen myself. Amen, pastor. Paul wrote verses like these. 1 Corinthians 2.9 What no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who loved him. That day when we'll be delivered from this body of sin and given new bodies, 1 Corinthians 15, what is sown is perishable, but what is raised, talking about our new bodies, will be imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. And with glorified bodies, we'll get to look on the face of our glorified Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And Revelation 21 says again, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Think about that. Think about the implications of that today. The former things passed away your present sufferings right now might be excruciatingly painful but Paul says if you could only see the glory if you find that difficult to believe and sometimes we do that's the struggle isn't it it's because our view of glory gets out of focus and Thomas puts it well, spiritual short-sightedness robs us for gospel comfort that God desires us to enjoy. It's easy to do. What should our view be? What's he saying here about standing on our tiptoes and waiting patiently and eagerly for, for this? What should our viewpoint be? Well, it's this. With our fleshly eyes, we see a world in decay and trouble, don't we? But Paul says we need to consider this renewed, perfect world to come. With our fleshly eyes, we watch our bodies deteriorate. But Paul says we need to consider our new bodies. With fleshly eyes, we look around, we can't make sense of what's going on. None of it makes any, any sense. But with eyes of faith, we need to look past it and see this world where everything makes sense with God. With fleshly eyes, we're tempted to sin here. But Paul says, consider a world of perfection, a world without sin to come. With fleshly eyes, Paul says, we see only in part dimly, but then we shall see Jesus face to face. Just as creation is on its tiptoes, Gazing past present sufferings, eagerly longing for final redemption, waiting for the revealing of the sons of daughters, that's us, sons of daughters to be revealed in glory when Jesus comes again. Paul is saying, let us also groan and gaze into that future glory because the suffering that we're going through now, it will lead to glory Lord thank you um, for this great word to us Lord we pray for your help in heeding it we confess that often Lord we lose sight of this and it changes our behaviors and challenges our faith in the present Lord we pray that you would help us Lord to to gaze through the suffering and to see this glory that is to come, that it might change the way that we think, the words that we say, the way that we live. And we would live lives as a people, your people, that you have made these precious promises to. So help us now. I pray that if there are some today who are suffering and perhaps that suffering has led them to come and seek, uh, seek you, Lord. I pray that you would open their hearts and their eyes to see Jesus Christ. 
suffering on the cross, rising again on the third day in glory to give us eternal life. And so may we turn from our sins and ourselves and gaze upon Jesus. And let us be the people that can say, it is well with my soul. We pray in His name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.